So welcome everybody to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 254 recap on Twitter spaces. It's Thursday, June 8th, and we'll do some introductions before jumping into our newsletter. Today we'll be talking about Matt and CTV and join pools along with our limited weekly series about mempool and transaction selection, waiting for confirmation number four on fee rate estimation. And then we have a release from LND and some PRs to go through. So thank you all for joining. I'm Mike Schmidt, contributor at Bitcoin Optech and executive director at Brink, where we fund Bitcoin open source developers. And unfortunately, Merch couldn't make it this week, but fortunately, Dave Harding can. Dave? I'm Dave Harding. I'm one of the authors of this week's newsletter, and really looking forward to this discussion. Gloria? Hi, I'm Gloria. I work on Bitcoin Core. I'm funded by Brink, and I'm, I authored the fee rate estimation section. Johan? Hi, I'm Johan. I work on Lightning and Bitcoin stuff. I'm funded by Nidic. Salvatore? Hi all, I'm Salvatore. I work on the Bitcoin application at Ledger and I also wrote the initial proposal for the match covenants. Awesome. Well, let's jump into it. Our first news item and only news item this week is using Matt to replicate CTV and manage join pools. So I'll, I'll take a stab at, at setting the context for everybody here and then we can jump in with the experts to dive a little bit deeper. So we've had Salvatore on previously, and we've highlighted some of his work, which was Matt, and initially presented at, I think, BTC Azores last year. And it's a proposal that seeks to enable general smart contracts in Bitcoin. And the original mailing list post outlined several potential new opcodes as part of enabling the Matt proposal, including something called Op Check Output Covenant Verify, which is the piece that would enable some covenant functionality. I think that opcode has since now been named to op check output contract verify. And the idea of a covenant is that instead of being able to spend the coin coins in my UTXO to any destination, there would be some restriction put on where those coins can be sent and that can enable certain smart contract use cases. And in newsletter 249, Salvatore talked about how you can use some of Matt's opcodes, including opcocv, to enable certain vault use cases. And now this week, Johan has taken opcocv and shown that you could replicate some of the functionality of the opctv, opcheck template verify proposal. And in a separate post also outlined how some of these MAT opcodes could be used in conjunction with the currently disabled opcat opcode to create a join pool. So to kick things off, Salvatore, what would you add to that framing of the context of MAT before we move forward with Johan's two different posts? Yeah, I think it was a good introduction. I think apart from specifying the specific opcodes, maybe one thing that could be useful for someone who's new to the, to the idea is that what the opcodes do, if you look at the core of what the proposal does, is just to give a way of embedding some data, just a hash, let's say, inside, inside a script, inside a UTXO. So you want, to, you want to, be able, to be able to do two things in script. One is to, be, to access any data which might be embedded in the current, in current input that you're spending. So give us access to script to this data. 
And the other thing that you want to do is to be able to constrain the, the script and the data of the outputs. Once you have these two primitives, you are able to do some interesting stuff because you can have data which is dynamically computed, while normally the program, you don't care about dynamically computing that. But for many contracts, it's impossible to pre to pre-enumerate all the possible futures, which was a limitation of CTV instead, where you kind of need to be able to enumerate them in advance, otherwise you cannot put those into the script, because the futures will depend on what's passed into the, the witness stack of the when you spend the coins. And the initial proposal that I made for, for Matt was not super formally well-written, because there are some, some details still to be figured out exactly on how, how to do them. And so they were in these two opcodes. There could be ways of doing that with just a sim single opcodes that I, I touched briefly in the last mailing list, and I think I'll try to experiment soon. But that's, that's the core idea. Once you can have this way of embedding some data and piping this data through transaction spends, then you can build some stuff on top. And I think that, that's all I will add. And I guess that could segue to one of the things that could be built on top. And Johan, we can jump into your first post about replicating the functionality of CTV. Do you want to talk, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I can talk about that. And I can also give some context of the, how I got to this point as well. So I started researching using CTV actually as part of next generation of lightning hlc outputs for commitment transactions because i wanted to like make those more efficient because now we have like all these hlc outputs on the lightning commitment transactions and i wanted to compress this into a single output so i started using ctv but quickly got into the same problem as salvatore here is explaining that you cannot really predict all possible futures of spending those hlcs it becomes an exponential blow up so i started looking into the various ways we could solve this with the the proposals on the table and Matt piqued my interest because it's it's very very simple really in in the check output contract and input contract verify uploads is you can check some data in the input and check some data in the output and then I started looking at what I could do with this and quickly realized that you can actually as long as you can compute it in Bitcoin script you can basically use these opcodes as a way of accessing memory in the input and the output states. So that's super interesting that you can find all this. You can get this very, very powerful thing in Bitcoin script with such simple opcodes. And after I did this with both still working on the HLC proposal, so that's coming soon. And then I also, like a simplified version of that again, is the coin pool or the uh, yeah the coin pool idea. So I, I published that and also realized that, okay, with this, I can actually very, very simply just do what CTV does with these with this opcode because it's it's a strict superset really of what you could do. So that's how I got to to that point. And yeah, a very simple opcode in itself, but very powerful properties you can you can get with those opcodes. I noticed a tool that I hadn't heard before that you used to do some of the demonstrations here, which is TapSim. Do you want to talk about that real quick, and then we can dig a little bit deeper on both of those? <clears throat> yeah. For sure. So TapSim is a tool I created basically to start to start playing around with these covenant proposals because there's so many proposals up, out there and they're all kind of very theoretical. There's like mailing list posts and some of them have BIPs, but nothing, not all of them has a real implementation. And if there's a real, if there's an implementation, it's in Bitcoin Core and it's very hard to like access and play around with. 
So what I did was I made a fork of BTCD, which is in Go, which for me personally is much easier to work with. And then I created this tool that just inspects the VM state during script ex execution and added some like UX sugar on top such, such that it's easy to like step through what the script is, what the stack and old stack and the state of the VM looks like while it's executing. So I packaged this into a tool that I've been using myself a bunch. It's very helpful. I, I, I wasn't really, I didn't plan on like publishing it yet because it's a bit rough around the edges, but it's, it's usable. And it's, for me, it's been very, very helpful in terms of debugging and playing around with different opcodes. Dave, do you have questions on these two mailing list posts that we covered this week? Sure. Actually, I wanted to start by just saying I really liked Tapsim. It reminds me a lot of an old program by Kali Alm called BTC Deb, which was very similar. It plugged in. It just built on a copy of Bitcoin D, and it was a debugging tool for scripts. And way back in the day, Kali implemented, I think it was BIP116 Op Merkle Branch Verify, which was going to enable MAST on Bitcoin before the idea of Taproot came around. And so Kali implemented that in Bitcoin Core and allowed you to go and play with it with BTC Dev. And I think this is a this is a really great way for evaluating proposals like this to to just implement them in Bitcoin D or in a, in, a, in a an alternative implementation of the consensus rules and then plug in some scripts and go and see how they work. I was really I just want to say to Johan, I really, really like going looking at these demos using TapSim. I didn't run them, but I just looked at the code for them, and it just helped me see how these things were working a lot better than reading pages and pages of mailing list posts. So I really appreciated that. I guess the question I had for Johan was, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but having implemented the primary behavior of CTV using COCV, would you still want CTV and script if you were actually going to go out and build things like join pools or uh, vaults or other stuff? Would you still want CTV and script or do you think COCV is enough? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. So obviously I think you could, as my, I was trying to demonstrate is that you can basically simulate CTV in using COCV. So I think it's strictly more or less a superset of what you could do. But as mentioned in my post as well, is that you can, CTV can actually be used for, to compress future spent a lot more than COCV in some sense, at least. So it's more efficient. So I would say there are different use cases for those two proposals. I'm excited for both of them, but maybe obviously more <laughs> excited about the CLCV because of the powerful uh, features it offers. Yeah, so that's my question. That's my answer there. And I just wanted to mention that BTC Deb was a huge influence or something I've used before and had a lot of influence on how I created TapSim as well. But I found it much easier to work with a Go code base, basically, So, which is why I created TapSim. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think it's going to get accessible to a lot more people, which is which is just great for evaluating these proposals is we want to get people with hands on them and building stuff that they actually want to use. This is, I think as we move into the future and soft forks become 
you know, kind of harder to do just because of the sheer mass of people who have to have eyeballs on this, have to be confident in it and upgrading their nodes and willing to run this. We just need people to build out these use cases, not just in theory, but as close to practice as we can. So I guess my question for you and for Salvatore would be, are either of you guys working on getting this maybe into Bitcoin Inquisition or just you know, getting this implemented up for more experimentation on Signets or other sort of test networks? I think maybe Salvatore, you... Yeah, so in the last couple of, one or two months, I've been a little bit busy with the work I'm doing at Ledger with Miniscript, so I didn't do a lot of progress. So I was actually very happy to see that Johan was doing some more progress on the proposal as well. But definitely, yeah, the, the main thing that I would like to achieve in the near future is to actually have fully formally defined opcodes that have all the missing features that are in a way trivial, like being able to inspect the amounts but there is some design space to fill there, let's say. And so there, there was something that I mentioned in the proposal following up on, on Johan's post, which is like he suggested for some reasons to actually make the two opcodes kind of symmetric so that you can have the same semantic that you have for inputs, you can have for outputs, because in the initial proposal, the check input covenant verify only works for the current input and it's a little bit simpler opcode, but they are kind of doing the same thing. And so one could think of either making them symmetric or even coming up with just a single opcode that does that can work on either an input or an output. And yeah, it would be interesting to try to do that and see if the code gets too complicated. It makes sense to have two opcodes instead because it, it's a little bit simpler programming. And so that would be something that I want to experiment in the near future. Just connecting to what was mentioned before about CTV, because in terms of functionality, COCV and, C and CI, uh, so check input contract verify together with check output contract verify is a strict supersect superset of what CTV enables. On one hand, one could think like, okay, then we don't need CTV. On the other hand, there are many cases where we can show that CTV is a lot more efficient. And actually that was one of the things that I wanted to show in the, in the post with, with, with emulating OpVault with, with MAT opcodes, because that's one case where you can see that CTV makes, makes the construction a lot more efficient. And so since it doesn't add any more powers to the script and the opcode is still very simple, I think it's a no-brainer that if you're you happy merging MAT opcodes, then adding CTV as an optimization is very, very small amount of complexity added, but it makes it a lot more efficient for some interesting use cases. So I think it will make a lot of sense to include CTV in the proposal as well. I don't know if, if I missed any of the questions in this. You, no, I think you addressed that. There's Dave mentioned Inquisition. You guys obviously have mailing list posts, which are garnering feedback. I know that there's also a contracting primitives working group. And then there's probably some offline discussions as well. I'm, I'm curious as to Johan, both with your example posts, as well as the broader map proposal, what is, what has feedback been from the community? How would you how would you summarize the, the community's temperature check on this proposal and, and these related demos? Well, <clears throat> what I would say is really that the original math post that Salvatore did was maybe a bit hard to grok for many. Like it, it has a lot. So it's very, it's, it's very cool that you can do like arbitrary computation using these opcodes. But maybe what I try to do is to get to the heart of it. What's like, what can you 
distill these opcodes into. And what I found from doing this experiment is like basically it gives you access to some memory in the output and some memory in the input. And that's very powerful as Salvatore shows in, in his post as well. So I think maybe that's the feedback I got is that, oh, okay, now I understand what these opcodes are doing instead of having this very, very powerful and maybe complex example of what you can do with this, trying to get into like the the really simple way of explaining these opcodes and how you from there can build out to something something much, much more powerful. And that's also kind of why I created TapSim as well, such that you can easily easily step through these scripts and so that you can understand what's going on and how you can build from there. And also without announcing TapSim in any like large way, people that I looked at it has given me the feedback that, okay, this is super, super useful. And it's something I've really wanted for a long time. So I'm very happy to hear that as well. Salvatore, do you, what, what is your feeling on how the, the community's reacted to the math proposal? Yes, I agree with Johan. My, my initial posts were a little bit hard to decode for, for many people. And well, the, the fact that I was not able to show code initially because I so if TAPSIM were, was available when I wrote the proposal, probably it would take me less time to write some, some code that I can show to people instead of actually writing a functional test in Bitcoin Core. So that took me quite some time to find the energy and the, the commitment to actually put the many days in a row into this project and, and have some working code. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to experiment more, more with TAPSIM as well. And yeah, I think so from past experience with soft forks and past experience with discussions on covenants, there's a little bit of, let's say, PSTD from the Bitcoin community where people are scared of covenants or potential risks that are being discussed, but not really materialized in any concrete scenarios of what are the dangers of, of covenants. And so seeing the other side where we see what are the use, useful things that we can build with covenants might probably help to level up the discussions. And basically, we want more people thinking about these ideas and, and reasoning about them and thinking like, of course, if there is serious concern concerns about dangers that could come up with covenants, that's something that more research will help to figure out as well. But but yeah, my, my impression is that actually, the more people will think about these things, the more we will realize that the, the, the scare of these things was a bit overblown, while there are many interesting things that we can be, build with them. And so actually, it's not obvious at all that the risks to potential, like the game theory of Bitcoin might materialize. And it could even be the opposite, like by, by enable, enabling more applications to be built on top of Bitcoin, more smart contracts that could be even privacy solutions or these coin pools and more reasons for people to pay fee, fees on the, on, on the base layer that could actually even improve the game theory. Like it's, it's not obvious at all that there is dangers that are in the negative in terms of game theory could be an improvement as well. So definitely my, my hope is that we get more people and more minds on, on this problem, on how we extend Bitcoin smart contract secure in, in a secure way. And I'm quite optimistic about the potential of this kind of approaches on, on improving Bitcoin. Dave, I'm curious. We, we have a lot of these kinds of proposals and I'm, I'm thinking as a general optech newsletter reader or listener to the show, like, what would be a useful way to think about where we as a Bitcoin community are at with all these proposals? Is there a particular way that you think about things that you think would be useful for others to be aware of in terms of these types of proposals? And it seems like there's 
every other month there, there's something interesting proposal or innovation that is you know involving either covenants or or new opcodes how do you think about it well to a certain degree i just try not to think about it because like you said there's just so much going on so i read the newsletter and then i just run away and put my head in the sink but i, I think that we have a lot of these proposals that are significantly overlapping in the functionalities that they enable sort of like how we see in this week's post that COCV can emulate part of CTV. I, you know, it can emulate it all, I guess, maybe. Uh, but there's trade-offs. Between all these proposals, there's trade-offs. So we have a lot of ideas. They're significantly overlapping in the functionality that they can perform, but there's trade-offs. So CTV, like Johan said, is going to be more efficient in some cases, but it's less flexible in other cases. So you have these trade-offs. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show my own idea here, but a, a little bit over a year ago, I posted to the mailing list the idea of a automatically reverting soft fork. So after, say, five years, we, we would activate a soft fork, and after five years, it would unactivate. The, those consensus rules that we added in the soft fork would no longer be enforced at the consensus level. And some people didn't like that idea. Uh, Matt Corral in particular did not like that idea. And that's fine. But I, the more I see these proposals that are technically sound and they have you know, a minimum consensus footprint, the, the, techni the technical complica complications are not great, the more I feel like that might be a reasonable direction to go. It's just find a bunch of these proposals test the heck out of them on inquisition, test the heck out of them in adding them to Bitcoin core proper, and then activate a bunch of them and see what happens. See what opcodes people use over a period of five years, see what people build on them, and then let the ones that aren't being used or that are being used poorly, maybe, just unactivate you know, fall out of consensus use and then keep the ones that work really well. So that's kind of where I'm leaning on a path forward. That's again, that's a controversial path forward, but just this idea of maybe we should think about this stuff as let's grab all the goodies and not worry now about trying to find which one is in some criteria best. I think the idea of of side chains originally was along this line, which is, you know, let these ideas proliferate and, and see what works. Obviously that hasn't come to fruition, you know, in the Bitcoin community in a, in a trustless way, you have things like liquid that are doing some of, some of these sorts of ex experiments, but yeah, I do remember that, that post and, you know, and, I'm not sure if we'll end up there, but it's an interesting route to get some of these things operationalized. Salvatore or Johan, do you have any closing words or calls to action for the community? Yeah, I can just add that I think there's been a lot of covenant proposals. I think many of them could achieve the same as Check Output Contract Verify does. But the nice thing about it, in my opinion, is that the simplicity of the opcode is very, very easy to reason about what it does and still you can build all these super interesting use cases so which is why i'm very excited about the proposal 
So since you asked for closing words, I'll try to do a, a pitch for the proposal, which is, I think soft forks are more dangerous than covenants. And so adding a more general covenant will reduce the need for future soft forks. So I think that's one reason why I think simple of codes that are general uh, could be an interesting direction. And that's what I'm trying to do with Matt. Well, thank you both for joining. You're welcome to stay on as we go through the rest of the newsletter. But if you have something that you need to get to, you're, you're free to drop. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. As usual. Thank you. Next section from the newsletter was our from our limited series on transaction relay and memcool inclusion and policy titled Waiting for Confirmation Number Four, Fee Rate Estimation. So luckily, Gloria has returned this week to join us to talk more about this weekly series. And last week's topic was all about techniques you could use to minimize your transaction fees, including things like modern output types, coin selection considerations, payment batching, and more. And this week, the topic is transaction fee rate estimation. So maybe to lead in, Gloria, how do we think about what a transaction's fee rate should be? Yeah, so again, I kind of want to preface this with like the hope for this series is to start conversations about how we can make things better for all the users of bitcoin and so it, it may seem weird that i've dedicated like an entire post to theory estimation but i thought it, it's like a space that's really ripe for innovation and you know there's a lot of work we can do to make things better and it's very multifaceted and interesting so hopefully someone's been nerd sniped or will be nerd sniped by this post but yeah so the question was how do we think about fee rates so fee rate estimation the goal is to translate a target time frame for which you want your transaction to get confirmed to a minimal fee rate that you should pay so obviously if you pay like I don't know, a Bitcoin on your transaction, it'll probably get confirmed pretty quickly. But you want to pay as little as possible, of course. And kind of the main point of this post is to say that fee estimation is really hard for a few reasons. One, the supply is unpredictable. Number two, the demand is unpredictable. And number three, the information isn't always public to you and can sometimes be gamed, really. So kind of an overarching idea for this series so far has been to create this public efficient auction for block space. So like when, when I talk about like information not being public or being gameable, for example, if we only looked at the fees of transactions included in blocks, basically the miners could put artificially high fee rate transactions in their blocks to drive up fee rates. If we had a very, you know, silly, naive, Theory estimator that I did that. Anyway, so back to kind of supply and demand being unpredictable. Blocks don't come every 10 minutes exactly. And that is a really sucky, I think, UI UX problem for Bitcoin. But it's, you know, part of what makes fee rate estimation hard. So, for example, if the merchant gives you 30 minutes to send the payment before they give the goods to you, but the next block takes 45 minutes to be found, you can get kind of screwed. But of course, like sometimes, you know, you find three blocks in a row in the span of a few minutes, right? And like these kinds of things are, I guess, a UX problem. It's not just like a, you know, how do we write a piece of software that's really good at estimating things. But of course, there's also 
the other side of the coin is that demand is very unpredictable. Of course, we all know that there are huge fluctuations in volume, and sometimes you can get blindsided by that. And sometimes your transaction can fall out of mempool, and that's a whole other UIX problem. And uh, yeah, so like the estimation is really hard. I talked about two kind of existing fee estimators that I'm aware of. One is the mental space, which I think is, is pretty accurate. I think a lot of people use mental space, I imagine. And their kind of approach, hopefully if there's someone on the call who can correct me if I'm wrong here, is essentially you have a really good view of what's in miners' mempools and you can almost just like calculate what's going to be in the next n blocks so you take the mempool and you run the block assembler algorithm and you're like all right to get into the nth block i can literally just build n blocks and then tell you what the fee rates of those transactions are and of course i imagine that to do this kind of accounting for other transactions that might come in in the next you know time frame is to build with kind of a a decreased block size to account for like, okay, there's other people that might send transactions at these fee rates and they'll fit into, into these empty spaces in the blocks that we're you know, projecting. And so that's one, it very much relies on all of your information being accurate, like what's in your mempool actually being what miners are gonna mine. And, and maybe that's very appropriate for something like mempool space where you have a lot of nodes, you have a very good idea of what transactions are in, in miners' mempools and maybe even have a good, a good idea of what out-of-band fees they might be accepting. So that's that's one one pre pretty accurate as far as I know, like fee estimation algorithm. And then there's also like Bitcoin cores, which kind of tries to sidestep the problem of non-public information by not trying to record it. So Bitcoin Core's fee estimation algorithm is looking at transactions as they come into your mempool and then recording when that happens and then recording when you then see them confirm. And then it's kind of, it's historical data based. And of course, if you have writers like putting artificial high fee transactions into their blocks, then that won't, that won't impact your fee estimation since you won't see them ahead of time. So that's kind of trying to avoid this like gameability aspect of potentially like trying to just use the information available to you. But I, I think there's, yeah, so like that, that's highlighting kind of two, two fee rate estimation algorithms that I'm aware of. I think both of them have room for improvement. Both of them are perhaps more appropriate for the user that they're, the piece of software that they're designed for, like Bitcoin Core, hopefully is, you know, just an individual user running, you know, their Raspberry Pi node or their laptop node or, you know, trying to have an independent fee estimator and not relying on centralized APIs. And hopefully Bitcoin Core gives them a nice, you know, trustless fee estimation based on public information. And then Mental Space, you know, has access to more information and hopefully can, can give you a more precise result, but perhaps requires you to have a very, very accurate idea of what miners are going to mine. So yeah, it's it's a multifaceted, fascinating problem. There's a mixture of UIUX, you know, maybe there's room for like data-based intelligent modeling of, of, you know, forecasting demand. Get some like data scientists on the case. I, I, 
I feel like, at least Bitcoin Core, I feel like there's a lot of room for improvements. And hopefully someone comes and, and looks at our fee estimator and opens a PR or something. That's kind of my goal. Gloria, you mentioned sort of it in the, just now and also in the post that forecasting block demand space is ripe for exploration. And you mentioned some examples of that. You mentioned data science, but you also mentioned in the post about certain activity patterns that may occur or certain times of, of the day or, or business hours or external events that can mess with fee rates. I know that there was like the BitMEX withdrawal at 8 a.m. Eastern time every day. I, I think that's gone now, but I think that was a big known thing. Are you aware of anybody working on like sort of some supplemental external events or otherwise ways of doing fee estimation? I am not at all. I mean, like Merch will tweet about it and he'll, you know, be able to point out patterns. And I'm sure we all, you know, do a little bit of thinking about like, I don't, I don't know of anybody who's like actually, I don't know, building a model or like, I mean, sh surely like, surely maybe like we can start with like a hackathon project or something to, to start plugging in data and, and seeing, oh, well, I think what we should do really is first try to build a framework for like fee rate estimation accuracy oh i think josie actually josie bake josie baker has has built like a really nice ipython notebook that draws a few graphs and has some tooling for like parsing the at least bitcoin core fee estimation database that those are like the only people that spring to mind I'm, I'm very sorry if there is totally like someone who's like just dropped a paper on this for example anyone had like knows anything please like give me and I feel like this is something that is almost like a low-hanging fruit almost like we could definitely improve or like there's some very obvious things that we can do to try to like get started like making things better and just you know anyone listening interested please do something <laughs> Dave, a lot of interesting points here from, from Gloria. Do you have anything to augment or, or questions for Gloria on this topic? No, I thought this was a, a very well-written post, so I don't really have any questions. Related to your previous question about people working on better fee rate estimation, a few years ago, Cali Am, who we already mentioned in this podcast, he had a project called the Mempool Monitoring Project, where basically he just recorded every transaction that hit his node, when it hit his node, when it got confirmed and just details like that in a historical database to provide the information for future research efforts. I don't know where that went, but you know, it's, it's the kind of thing you could use for And he also had the idea of one of the things we have with theory estimation is that it's kind of self, you know, recursive in the sense that when fee rates go high, the fee rate estimator tends to return high fee, rate, high fee rate estimates. Everybody starts paying higher fees. And then when there's a small spike in demand or a loss in supply, fee rates go higher. The fee rate estimator turns even higher fees. And so it, it kind of just keeps increasing, increasing, increasing. And it falls off a cliff all of a sudden when demand drops just a little bit and whatnot. And so Callie also had the idea. I don't know that it was his idea, but 
he was working on a, a test implementation of having fee rates set to the lower bound of what was currently in the mempool versus what the statistical-based fee rate estimator does. So kind of a synthesis of the two approaches that Gloria describes in her post right now. Just, just synthesizing those two and taking the minimum of that and returning that as the fee rate for transactions that could be easily fee bumped with RBF. And I guess that would bring me to one other point I'd like to make is that if you don't have fee rate estimation, basically what you're stuck doing is setting a transaction at a very low fee rate, waiting some amount of time for it to confirm, and then RBF fee bumping it. And you just keep doing this until all of a sudden it gets confirmed. And you can do this. So this is your, as far as I know, your only alternative for trustless fee management to running your own node with a mempool is to just iteratively RBF fee bump your transactions until it gets confirmed. And that's kind of a bad UX in the sense that it takes a long time before you get to the rate of the current mempool. And you're probably still gonna overpay too by some amount. So I think fee rate estimation it's an interesting topic. It's good to explore. It's good to see how far we can get at making good estimates, considering the, like Gloria said, unpredictability of the supply and demand. I guess I could throw one more point here is a few years ago, some researchers posted a paper to Bitcoin Dev suggesting we change the way the auction works. And the idea was that you overpay your fees, but you get a refund. So miners have to claim every transaction in a block at a consistent fee rate. Every transaction block pays the same fee rate, but you can overpay your fee rate and get a refund of the difference between what you paid and what miners claimed. So the low, the cheapest fee in a trans, the cheapest fee rate claimed in a block would be the fee rate that applies to all transactions in the block. Unfortunately, this does not work with Bitcoin's UTXO model, at least not very well. You'd have to make a horrible hack of it. But man, I think that would be a great improvement. So that's it for me. So, so how would that work then? Transaction fees would be collected by the miner. And, and when the block is mined, essentially users who are transacting and who have tra transacted over that average or, or whatever that, that, that cutoff is, would, would get paid out in the Coinbase or, or the sort of like a, a mining pool kind of thing to get to get their refund? So it was designed kind of in mind of the Ethereum account model. So in Ethereum, you have an account with a balance. So if we think of the Ethereum, the way it would work in Ethereum is that all the transactions in the block would say, okay, you can use up to one F of my balance to pay the transaction fee to get my transaction in a block. And the miners would take all the transactions they could. Again, they would pull them by what would be most profitable for the miner. And they would choose the lowest, you know, the, whatever the lowest fee, the lowest paying transaction they include in the block. They would take 100% of that transaction's allocated fee. But the highest transaction, they may only take 5% of its fee. And the rest would stay in the Ethereum account. Now in Bitcoin, we don't have accounts. That's what makes this a really sticky proposal is that you would basically have to have the miner, like you say, in the Coinbase transaction, issue a bunch of outputs for every transaction in that block. So if you had 
4,000 transactions, the Coinbase transaction would have to have 4,000 outputs at about 40 bytes each, which is just insane. I think Mark Friedenbach had a proposal for how to do this, and it's something that becomes a little bit more possible with Covenants, because Covenants can kind of get us towards an account model. If you want that, it's bad for privacy. It has all these problems applying it to Bitcoin. I just wanted to mention it in case somebody's listening and can think about a really, really clever way to make that possible because it just allows you to say, this is the highest fee rate. I'm willing to pay for my transaction. Get it done. And yeah, that would be nice. Just just pipe all the, the excess funds into a join, a join pool. There you go. You solved it, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Gloria, anything before we move on? Next week's is about DOS. Looking forward to it. Gloria, thanks for joining us. I know you are at an event. If you need a drop, thanks for joining. If not, happy to have you on. Cool. Thanks for the not docs. (laughs) (laughs) Next section of the newsletter is releases and release candidates. And we just had one here, which is LND 0.16.3 beta, which is noted as a maintenance release. And there's a few different bug fixes and other performance fixes here. The, the one that I thought was notable was that LND bumps the version of its underlying BTC wallet library, which is a library that LND uses for it, its wallet functionality. The reason that it's bumping the version of that library was that there was a performance issue in this BTC wallet library that caused CPU, CPU usage to spike when performing certain mempool-related operations. So there was an optimization put in BTC Wallet that added a cache, which improves this performance and solves the CPU issue, which also then obviously affected LND. So by bumping the, that version of that library, LND is no longer susceptible to these CPU spikes. Dave, was there anything else notable from this LND release that you wanted to know? No, we just added a, a note here that they, uh, I think the fix that you're talking about was related to their mempool watching logic. So they're, they're actually looking at the mempool now to find transactions, lightning transactions that have gone on chain for one reason or another, so they can resolve them quicker than waiting for them to confirm. And so this is a, a speed up between the time that a channel closes and you can start using your funds for something else. So... They're working on that. They're, they're making L&D a little bit faster for its users. So that's nice. Next section of the newsletter is notable code and documentation changes. I'll use this opportunity to solicit any questions that the audience may have. Feel free to request speaker access or comment on this Twitter thread, and we can get your question at the end of the newsletter. First PR is Bitcoin Core 26485. And this is a change to Bitcoin Core RPC methods and how they're called. So in order to call certain Bitcoin Core RPCs previously, there was a parameter called options, which was required to pass certain parameters. And that particular options parameter was a big nested JSON object. And with this PR, that nested JSON option is still can be used, but there's an additional way that you can now call certain RPCs that required that previously. And you can actually use name parameters instead of a big old JSON object. So this adds some flexibility for applications calling the RPC 
which seems nice. Dave, is there a particular use case that you think was in mind here for, for adding this additional way to call the RPC? So I use Bitcoin CLI a lot. And one of the really big pains of using it is that you spend half your life quoting stuff because JSON in the shell is just not fun. You have to put you know, the outer thing in single quotes. You have to put all of your parameters in double quotes. It's just... And then, and then you're putting, you know, curly braces around everything or, or square braces around, you know, arrays. And so anytime somebody comes along with an idea like this, it's just a small code change and allows you to stop quoting everything and stop. The braces aren't so bad, but, you know, just simplifying stuff. I think that's what it is. It's just Bitcoin pro programmers are spending a lot of time using Bitcoin Core and they're spending a lot of their lives just quoting things and then dealing with the problems that happen, the, the weird error messages you get in the shell when you misquote stuff. So I think that's what's happening here is just, they're just making it a little bit easier to use, especially since it's something they use every day, tons of times every day. Eclair 2642 adding a closed channels RPC. So Eclair is adding this. We, we noted that a few newsletters ago, we covered Core Lightning adding a similar RPC. And I, I thought it was interesting in digging into this PR. The, the first comment I think was in response to someone opening this PR was TBAS saying, can you explain why you think it, this is useful? And the, the person opening the PR said, first of all, it's going to make me as famous as Rusty Russell is via the Bitcoin Optech newsletter since we had covered the, this core lightning RPC previously. So I thought that was kind of funny to get an optic shout out in the middle of this PR for the reason of opening this. But the real reason the person gave was the only way to figure out which peer closed the channel and what the cause and what the balance of the channel was, in addition to other information, was this person was using a Lightning Explorer and, and mentioned Amboss and some other ones and, and noted that that is a privacy leak by using these explorers to find out some of the information that was already in his node. He just didn't have an, an easy way to, to access it. And then TBAS added the OPSEC make me famous label to the PR. And now this person is famous. Dave, any comments? No, except that I, I laughed at that remark too on my comment. LND7645 making sure that any user provided fee rate in certain RPC calls is no less than a quote relay fee rate. And so there's the open channel, closed channel, send coins, send many RPCs in the LND node that are functions that a user can provide a fee rate. And previously there was no check on what that fee rate would be. And thus it could be below either a relay fee or the, the minimum mempool fee. And so this change actually puts a check in and will provide an error if the quote relay fee rate may seem slightly different than things depending on the back end. So there's multiple back ends. And so for Bitcoin D, the, this relay fee rate that they're referring to is actually what, whatever's greater, the, the relay fee or the minimum mempool fee. And I'm not exactly sure what BTCD equivalent is for that, but there's at least some checking going on for user-provided fee rates to make sure that they're adequate, I would say. Dave? 
Yeah, yeah. So this is just something that you need to do when we're having what some people call full mempools. So when Bitcoin D, and I think BTCD now as well, their mempools are have a maximum size. And when they get full, they start dropping transactions at the bottom. And they can use, I think it's bit 133, but it could be bit 130. I get confused all the time. There's a message that nodes can send that says, this is the current minimum fee that I'm accepting. And so when you're at that point that the node is rejecting transactions below a minimum fee rate, if you try to send a transaction below that, it's just not going to propagate at all. It's going to hit the first node and that node's going to drop it and it's going to go nowhere in the network. So I think that's all that's happening here is saying that your local node, your backend has a minimum and maybe all its peers have a minimum. I don't know exactly how this is implemented. And if you're trying to try the transaction on that, it's just not going to work. So try with a higher fee. So this is, this is a nice, you know, fix a, an edge case that users might bump into improvement. Next PR is LND7726, making a change that it will always spend all HTLCs paying the local node if a channel needs to be settled on chain, even if it might cost more in transaction fees to sweep them than they are worth. And this is in contrast to a PR from Eclair from last week that added logic not to claim an HTLC that would cost more in fees to claim than it's worth. And noted in this PR is, quote, in the future, we'll start to make more economical decisions about if we go to chain at all for small value HTLCs, unquote. So it's interesting to see sort of diverging PRs with regards to claiming HTLCs on chain, we have one saying we'll do it economically and one saying we'll do it no matter what. Dave, thoughts on this PR? This one was a bit confusing for me to disentangle when I was writing it up to figure out exactly what was going on. It's a small code change to LND, the actual PR itself, that you kind of have to dig in to figure out what it's, what it's working on. But the idea there is they already had logic that wouldn't try to claim an HTLC if it looked like it was uneconomical. But there were a bunch of cases where it could be economical because other things depended on it. And so they decided to make the call to always claim it, even though it, it might not be economical, just because they don't want to lose out on those occasions where it could be a larger amount of funds depended on it that would definitely make it economical. And what they're going to do is go back and just, you know, add cost accounting to their program to be able to figure this stuff out so they can always make economical decisions. And that, and that just means sometimes an HTLC on LN is going to be uneconomical. You make a transaction on Lightning Network two weeks ago when fees were lower, and today fees are higher, and it's just not worth claiming that money. And that's just an interesting dynamic that we need to think about when designing lightning software in the future is, you know, what do we do about high fee environments and small HTLCs not necessarily making sense. So I think this is, a, this is an interesting, I don't want to say it's an open problem in LN. It's not, I think there's solutions out there, but just figuring out which solutions we're going to adopt and what trade-offs we're gonna make. Last PR this week is LDK2293. And the motivation here sounds like, sounds like LND sometimes stops 
responding, leading to channels being forced closed. And the common solution for L&D node operators is to restart their node or reconnect to their peers and just try to start from some sort of a fresh state. And so LDK is mitigating this interoperability issue by disconnecting unresponsive peers after a period of time to, I guess, also cause that fresh state to be forced. And there is actually a related LND PR, which was recently merged as well. So Dave, this sounds a little funky. It's like the old, if it's not working, turn it off and turn it back on again kind of thing. That was exactly what I was going to say. But yeah, it, you know, actually it seems like a, a decent solution to actually just have in your code base is if your peer isn't responding, but you think they could be responding and you think there's just something going on there, just start and stop. And the reason that works in software so often is that it just brings you back to that initial state. Programmers are a lot better about reasoning about initial states and finding bugs in initial states than they are in a piece of software that's been running for days or weeks and is in just some state that is very, you know, rarely reached in the code the programmer has not thought about. So just in the case of unresponsiveness, just going back to that initial state, I think it's a good solution. I don't, I don't see any problems here. It, it sounds, it's, it's an ugly hack, I guess, but if you can get over the ugliness, it seems pretty functional to me. We did have one question, Dave, that I'll, I'll direct at you that came from Chad Pleb. This person asks, is it possible to take historical blocks and say something about how efficient transaction fees were in order to approximate how much was overpaid or wasted or using some sort of standard deviation like metrics? So Chad, what you need is you need to know when that transaction was first relayed and when it got entered to a block. So you just can't grab blocks themselves because you're missing the information of when that person sent that transaction. What I think you might be looking at is say the, the difference between you know, the highest fee transaction in a block, highest fee rate for a transaction in a block and the lowest fee rate transaction in a block. And if, it's, uh, if they're all close together, then you could call that efficient. And if they're, if they're very far apart, you could call that inefficient. That works pretty well if you assume that nobody was paying fees out of bound and that miners weren't doping their own blocks. So miners can add transactions to their blocks that pay any fee rate at a very low risk to the miner of somebody else grabbing that fee. So just to be really specific here, if I'm mining a block, I can include a transaction that pays one BTC in fee to myself. And that makes it look like I claimed a lot of fees, but in really, I just wasted block space. So if you ignore that, if you ignore people paying fees out of bound, so people paying fees directly to miners through a credit card or through another system, then you can do that. Uh, I don't know that... I don't know exactly what information that gives you, except, like you said, how inefficient it was compared to optimum. Again, I think what you really want to know is what people paid, when they paid, and how long it took them to get into a block. And I guess you also want to know how long they wanted to wait, 
which is unknowable from public data. Sorry, it was a bit of a rambling answer. I, ho I hope that kind of answered your question at least. Thanks, Dave. I think that's it for questions and that's it for the newsletter this week. I'd like to thank Gloria for joining us and Johan and Salvatore and to my co-host Dave for coming in for merch. Thanks, Dave. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>